Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Mark. Good to see you on the show. Hey, Jeremy. Good to see you. I'm really excited to share about your global experience across Russia, Israel, Singapore. Uh, and, you know, I'm also passionate about hearing some about your experiences as an operator, an executive in tech, as well as an angel. So uh, it'd be interesting to chat about those things. Absolutely. I'd love to talk about that. So, Mark, for those who don't know you yet, uh, how would you introduce yourself professionally? Okay, um, I've been a leader in various uh, businesses and uh, nonprofit organizations too, working on uh, technologies in uh, various fields, starting from space technologies, then quantum technologies, then uh, software and data protection and artificial intelligence. So my experience in uh, technology is uh, uh, quite um, general and diverse. And uh, recently, I started uh, applying that uh, as an investor, too, in addition to operational business. Awesome. And, you know, you grew up, uh, you know, in, as a kid, and you also started your technology career in Russia. And, you know, for those in Southeast Asia, very much their perception of Russia is very much true to movies, right? Uh, so ABC from Hollywood, and then also we're going to see some of... Uh, my favorite scene I think recently was like the Wandering Earth. I don't know if you saw that, a science fiction movie by Liu Cixing. And the opening shot actually was um, the Russian cosmonaut and the Chinese cosmonaut being very bro-y uh, on their own uh, independent space station, <laughs> drinking yeah. uh, Russian vodka. So uh, yeah, tell us more. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie, but you know, I can imagine. Um, indeed, I'm Russian. I grew up in Moscow. And uh, I did my PhD in uh, uh, one of the best uh, universities uh, in uh, technology and science field, um, Moscow Institute for Physics and Technology. That was in the era that time called data mining. You know, later they started started calling it more like big data, and now it, a lot of things are just called uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, without a distinction. But I was doing algorithms of uh, clustering uh, various data sets that contain uh, uh, both textual and uh, numeric information. And then I thought where to apply my skills. I could stay in academia. I could go to business. And I got an offer to join uh, the largest space technology corporation in Russia, which I did. And I think that defined my future track out of academia to the industry. I joined uh, as a researcher, but uh, several years later, I moved inside that company into the business development space. I created to the department uh, that was a new one, a small one, but uh, the idea was, let us look at what is happening in space technologies globally, try to merge what we can do in Russia with some uh, technologies and the businesses outside of Russia and see how it is going. And I think it was a fascinating journey. So that was the first time I tried uh, building uh, new technologies, bridging different companies together. And that was very interesting. And I think uh, my interests have not changed since then, although the country has changed. Yeah, I think Russia has always been a leader in technology. Uh, and I think there's something that, you know, we've seen a lot of great stuff come out of Russia. 
And what's interesting is that there you are, and for some reason, you decide to move to Singapore, right? And uh, take on a tech executive role. So tell us more about that decision. Yeah, my experience for the first 30 years of my life was primarily in Russia, although I was flying a lot and I was uh, working a lot with uh, non-Russian uh, tech companies. Almost all of them were in the U.S. And the vast majority of them were, it happened so uh, around New York, Boston. So I, I worked more with the East Coast. And I didn't have experience in Asia, although I knew that Asia is very diverse so you need actually to look at different countries, not Asia as a whole. And I knew a bit about Singapore. I had experience working with uh, some uh, organizations in Singapore and uh, uh, traveling to Singapore. So then it happened uh, kind of accidentally. I was thinking about what to do next in life around 2014. And I got an offer from uh, the founder and the CEO of uh, several IT software companies. One of them was Acronis, and that was the company that that person uh, returned to, to, to as a CEO uh, not very long um, before he offered me to join the team. So I accepted that offer. And that time, the uh, headquarters of the company was in Burlington, Massachusetts. Uh, this is the area that I knew very well. But uh, we decided that uh, it was right to run the business uh, from Singapore, taking into account uh, various uh, things uh, happening in Asia, the dynamics, uh, uh, Singapore being a neutral country, you know, when you work in the data protection space, it's good to be able to sell anywhere. So long story short, I accepted the offer and I moved to Singapore uh, and started uh, working on uh, um, operation driving this business uh, from uh, Singapore, which was the international headquarters. And then I just stayed here. Do you remember what was it like when you touched down in Singapore? What was your feeling in your first you know, day, first week? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, uh, almost all about the climate, this humid and warm climate. Now I got used to that. I actually love it. But, uh, you know, when you come from uh, Russia, uh, it's so much different. I would say humidity is the main thing. It feels like uh, you are in a spa all the time. First, then you get used to that. Yeah, I think that's what happened to me when I moved to the States uh, in California. I was like struck by how dry it was, right? So suddenly I was like, oh, now that's why people use chapstick and moisturizers, right? <laughs> because, you know, it's so dry. Um, so there you are in Singapore, and you, you know, you're building out this, you know, career here. And what's interesting is that not only are you there at this company for a couple of years, but then you choose to kind of like double down and continue working in Singapore at Tiger uh, and make the move there while also working at SG Tech along the way. So tell us more a little bit about what was it like to obviously, you know, make the move in, but then choose to like double down and keep working uh, in Singapore. For me and for my family, that was the first uh, time we experienced living and working outside of Russia. Uh, and also my, my family was expanding that time. Uh, we came with one small kid and uh, the second kid was born here in Singapore. Um, I don't think it was the right time to change countries again, because every time you change a country, you change so many things around. Basically, the biggest thing is uh, the network, uh, because um, even now when uh, so many interactions are online, I think still your network is very much uh, territorial. 
not not fully, but like 50% of, uh, of it is territorial. And when I made a move to Singapore, I had a very little network here. And then I started building it uh, via different business projects, via board positions, via operational work interactions. And that requires time. So uh, to me, it was quite natural to stay in Singapore for a long time. And we're here and uh, we, we, we plan to be here uh, just because every change of the country is quite a high cost in terms of uh, the need to build many things again in a new location. Yeah, that's so true. And I feel that's really underappreciated when you're young. And I think as you become more of an executive where, you know, a lot of the business is not just about doing the work, but it's also about who you know and what kind of connections you can build. That's uh, something that actually um, stacks up quite importantly as a piece of criteria so that's something i only came to realize a couple of years ago as well and you know for me i think what's interesting as well is that you know you've continued working on this uh piece where you've learned to be a tech executive right so you've always been a vp a chief operating officer you know um senior vp so what's it like uh for those who don't know it yet you know like a lot of people out there are like junior folks right you know like and then they look at these senior VPs as like demigods walking the, uh, back in the day, the shared op, you know, working space, right? Um, what, what do you think are the things that are different about as you climb and become like an executive at, in this case, a re- big tech company? Um, what are kind of like the key differences that are happening because of the work? That's a great question. I think the answer depends on what type of companies we're talking about. There are bigger companies and there are startups or scale-ups. My journey was uh, more from bigger companies to smaller companies. And I think that uh, being executive at a large company means that you need to have a great vision and view on the area that you're responsible for. You need to be really very strategic. You most often need also to be a bit political to be able to navigate the corporate environment. At the same time, on the operational level, you can afford not understanding very deeply 100% of things. You can afford that because even if uh, there is a snooker ball that is falling and you fail to catch it, most likely someone will catch it. So the probability of uh, really losing a lot because uh, there is a small gap in your understanding of something is quite low. In smaller companies, that doesn't happen. And I think the difference in uh, the way how you work between an executive and uh, a manager of a lower level is uh, not that big. Um, In all cases, you need to understand very well what is happening in each each 100% of aspects of the business that are relevant to to what you're doing. Because if there is a ball that is falling and you fail to catch it, most likely it will just drop. And that will be a negative impact. So that's to me the biggest difference. So uh, summarizing in large companies, indeed uh, it's a different type of activity to be an executive. In a smaller company, uh, I think um, it is more like a title, but uh, Everyone is doing more or less the same, but in different areas. I like what you said about, you know, like the balls, right? <laughs> you know, like dropping this versus it being kept in the air. 
for a lot of people, of course, they're thinking to themselves, how do I get promoted to the point where I can uh, keep those balls up in the air or you know, make sure that they're not being dropped? What advice would you give to people who are you know, kind of like cl- trying to climb the ladder at a startup or trying to join another startup in an executive role? What advice would you give them as they start that process? I would say try to really understand how the business works uh, as fast as you can. Spend uh, a lot of time during the first months you are within your team uh, in a new company, just really making sure that you understand everything and you do not try to trick yourself and uh, think that you understand, although you doubt that, and just move to learning another piece of the business. Because there are many cases when uh, people do not really understand some of the aspects of the business. And then usually at some point of time, it becomes a problem. Now, after you understand the the business, then uh, you switch your mind to uh, another goal and start thinking about uh, how to bring maximum value. And this is what you do. But again, it can be efficient only if you really understand and feel the business. As a person joining a new company, you probably do not have that understanding in advance. You are not a founder, you are not the person who built it. But if you understand it really well, and you're smart and you're experienced, you will be able to generate value and this is how you grow. How does someone really understand the business? Um, because you know, sometimes you feel like you understand it and you know, it's hard to know how much you actually do understand, right? So like, how would you recommend someone uh, get around to absorbing as much about the business as possible? I would prioritize two things. One thing is uh, understanding how the revenue is generated. So um, taking different types of uh, client projects, different types of uh, projects where the company is delivering value in different ways, and just uh, writing some schemes on uh, on paper just for yourself, trying to make sure that you can draw and understand and calculate how much it costs, what the risks are, how you get paid, uh, what is the strategic direction. So I would start from dividing whole business into different types of projects that you do in terms of which value to which customers you bring. And that's the first thing. And the other thing is talking to people. Just talk to people who are more experienced than you, who have been uh, in the company for a long time. Uh, They have uh, so many things to share and people, most often help when you ask, just spend time with the people and uh, uh, during the first month, just to make sure that uh, you write down what they're saying. If you understand later that you do not understand why they said that, just approach them again and ask. Those are great tips. I mean, I really love the part of course about getting to know people and making sure you're taking notes. And I also really think and agree with you that understanding how revenue is actually made in a company is a big one because um, one thing I've noticed, like a lot of consultants and a lot of people who are in big companies is they forget how the, the company makes money, right? So they know how to cut costs. Um, they know how to increase profitability, but they don't really understand how $1 is made in a company, right? And when they forget about that, then all the recommendations and all that you know decision-making all gets kind of like, 
weirdly optimized, right? For whatever they're used to, right? So was it like the joke is the person with marketing background would be like, let's increase marketing spend. The person with the sales background says, let's increase sales reps, right? You know, the person with the technology background is like, let's increase engineers and nobody is really saying like, okay, what are we trying to achieve, right? At the end of the day. Yeah, I, that led me to thinking about one more thing that I would probably add to the first two, which is uh, talking to the other executives in the company, make sure you really understand what uh, the priorities are for the long term, for the short term. Even for the long term, uh, everyone is uh, driven by the same goal to grow the business, but the priorities can be a bit different in middle long term, uh, like uh, you might just prioritize the growth in uh the uh, company uh, uh, scale or valuation, or you want to reach uh, a positive EBITDA relatively soon, you need to understand all that. And in the short term, there can be some goals that everyone should be united around, and you should be at least aware of them. Uh, because uh, what I saw several times during uh, uh, my work life is that uh, there are smart, experienced people that uh, quickly after joining the company, come up with uh, interesting ideas and they create great proposals, but these proposals just do not get supported and uh, that leads to some frustration. So um, the reasons for that are that uh, the, the company as a whole is not really focused on the direction that these people are pushing for right now. Yeah, that's really true. And I see that all the time as well, right? And well, I guess I'm kind of curious, like, that's how does an executive work with another executive, right? <laughs> you know, that's that's my question, right? Like, do you have any tips on that? Because it's interesting, right? Because when you're a junior person, you got the only one person you need to manage is your boss, right? <laughs> you know, and as you get promoted, you know, sure you need to manage upwards, which you've always done, and of course you know how to manage downwards, so that's pretty straightforward. Um, but there's this new layer called managing across the layer, right? So you're like working with the engineering team, the sales team, the marketing leadership, right? So do you have any tips about how, you know, you're, you're all at a table equivalent? How would you build that relationship to be stronger and, you know, more aligned? I probably will not say anything unique. So managing horizontally is, uh, again, about uh, building connections with the people, understanding what they want and uh, what they're trying to achieve. And uh, the basis for efficient uh, cooperation on top of just the relationship you have is that you help these people to achieve their goals and they will help you achieve yours. So build the relationship and understand what they're working on right now. Again, it requires understanding of uh, what each part of the company is actually busy with what is happening, what they're trying to achieve, and automatically you will understand the worldview and set of motivations of your peer executives. And it will be easy for you to decide how to approach them, what to suggest, what to ask. They do the same with you. Yeah, that's actually a really good tip. Um, and when you talk about understanding their incentives and what they're trying to achieve, and another top part you said was like about building connections. How do you build connections? Is it like, you know, go out for dinners and drinks? Do those things help uh, from your perspective? Uh, or is it more about those like one-on-ones where we can use like a whiteboard and figuring stuff out? That helps. Um, going out, uh, in-person connections, dinners, that helps. But I wouldn't say that this is mandatory or this is the only thing you should do. 
Now, uh, after one and a half years of uh, COVID, I think we all have experience working remotely and it actually works. In some cases, yes, you lose efficiency compared to in-person interaction, but uh, you know, nothing stops. People are working and uh, projects are happening and companies are developing. So obviously dinners are not uh, anything mandatory. Um, the biggest tip for me probably would be understand uh, how you can help the person. Uh, you, you might not ask the typical VC question, how can I help? But uh, if you understand how you can help and you do something, something really, really small, maybe in advance, you do not need anything right now, but you try to uh, suggest a person to talk to or advise something or at least send an interesting, relevant link with some explanation why you think that this uh, article might be useful, anything that creates a basis for a fruitful collaboration in the future. People do remember these things and uh, people really want to pay back and people want also to be helpful and, and then they gladly accept your help. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth there. I think one thing that you made me think of is, yeah, you know, when you work as an executive in a technology firm, you... At the end of the day, the basic assumption, which will be true almost all the time, is that everybody wants the best for the company because we're all working here. Uh, and so the only question is, how do we get there, right? And that perception may be different in terms of our professional judgment. Um, so sometimes a lot of arguments are not necessarily about whether we should do this. Because I think we all agree we should do all of this. The only question is in what sequence or what priority it is. And that's something I often use all the time. Like, are we actually disagreeing about what we're saying? Or are we just disagreeing about the priority or the sequence of it, right? And that helps like, you know, uh, diffuse uh, a lot of debates very quickly. Yeah, there is one more thing, Jeremy, since we went into this direction of uh, how to be efficient as an executive, I think um, coaching is very important. Um, having someone who is either a professional executive coach or just a person maybe doing something like what you're doing now or who had such experience but working in another company and who agrees to regularly spend some time with you is a tremendous value. And uh, that can help you uh, look at what you are doing and the problems that you are solving uh, from a completely different point of view and then integrate that point of view with your point of view, uh, which helps to um, make bad decisions. It is not like uh, you will wait for that another person to tell you what to do. No, in a good coaching situation, they never tell you what to do. But you will be able to look at the problem with their eyes. You will be able to learn some questions that you might not be asking yourself. You might be avoiding asking those questions just psychologically because that's a tough question. And when someone nearby uh, looking at, in your eyes is asking this question, uh, that's usually, usually a cold shower that uh, forces you to find an answer and then the overall quality of decisions gets much better. I highly recommend working with uh, an executive coach, at least from time to time. How do you find a good executive coach? Because, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, advertising themselves um, and there's no like, you know, easy review ratings, you know. So what's a good advice for people to be able to find a good coach that fits with them? 
Okay. I think my situation here is uh, not typical because among my quite close friends, there is a person who is a great executive coach. This is his passion. Um, he's part of uh, the team of uh, Marshall Goldsmith, who is one of the uh, most well-known uh, US-based executive uh, coaches. And uh, through this person, I have a good understanding of uh, the whole landscape and the network. But if I didn't have this person in uh, my very close network, then probably what I would do um, would be asking people who I believe are doing the right things, and I know they are working with coaches, uh, asking them who they're working with and who they're happy with. I will most likely start with getting references and I would not just Google and uh, call uh, people with uh, cold calls. I, I don't think it works well in uh, uh, this type of arrangements. Yeah. I think you made me think, I think one tip I heard in the past was like, look for an executive coach who has either done your role in the past uh, and now they're chilling because they're retired and coaching or look for someone who spends a lot of time coaching people in your vertical or your company type, right? Because an executive coach for a startup executive or founder is very different from an executive coach for big tech executives, which is very different from an executive coach for people who are like FMCG uh, company leaders. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think we are already speaking about uh, the coaches that uh, have experience. So technically they can do the job. And then the most important question will be whether you as a person will be open with that person and vice versa. So can you work together well as people? Because this is a, a relationship, just another type of the relationship. So to solve this, uh, probably good ways to think about other people, executives in your network, who you think are maybe somewhat similar to you in terms of which people they are comfortable with, who they work with, and then asking those guys whether they know anyone who, who is good and then talking to that person. It's very likely that you will also feel good with that person. Yeah. Sometimes it can be feel awkward, right? Asking for an executive coach, you know, at least it's less stigma, I think, compared to asking for a therapist. Uh, but it does feel a little bit like, you know, because I think there's, you know, historically, I think a lot of people are like, oh, you only get an executive coach if you're failing or doing poorly as an executive, right? So um, I guess what is your response to that? Like, if someone is concerned that there's stigma about having an executive coach, what would be your reaction to that? I would try to explain that this is uh, absolutely normal and this is even good because, uh it's uh, probably much less logical to understand that you have a means of uh, becoming more efficient and you are purposefully avoiding it. This is illogical and strange. There are countries like the USA where um, having an executive coach is uh, already perceived uh, as a very normal thing. Um, say in Russia, it is still different. And uh, 10 years ago, I think uh, the whole executive coaching uh, movement was just starting. So people looked at that uh, as uh, at a really weird thing, but now it is changing. It's um, a bit more difficult for me to speak about the coaching landscape in Singapore. Uh, I know there are rather a lot of executive coaches and uh, I know people who regularly work with executive coaches, uh, but you know, here in Singapore, I've never had an open uh, one-on-one -on -one talk with another executive about coaching. So this is interesting, but uh, I do not know where Singapore is uh, in this journey. 
I think the more American, you know, uh, aligned executives are going to be like much more comfortable talking about executive coaching, right? Because of that. I think the local people who have gone up through the local system and haven't had an opportunity as much are still processing and learning how to use a coach and not feeling shame you know, of using an executive coach, no. uh, which is interesting. Yeah. I'm thinking about that uh, rather logically and analytically. Uh, there is uh, one more value of a coach, which you will probably be able to get whoever that person is. This is uh, increasing your accountability. Uh, many people know that uh, if you really want to do something and you just tell yourself, this is what I will do, there is a pretty high chance that you will not do that. But if there is another person who you promise to do that and you give a date, then the probability that you really get that completed by that date goes up a lot. So who can you promise? You can promise it to your partner, your, your spouse, but uh, obviously it doesn't work often because uh, it will be uh, quite unusual. But if you have a coach, this is a perfect uh, person to discuss such, such things. And uh, you just promise, you give commitments to that person. It worked very well to me. And I really noticed that uh, I managed to achieve more in such situations compared to just uh, making a promise to myself. Yeah, that's amazing. So, you know, one way I do know that you've been helpful and also been a coach to others is that you yourself have been an angel investor um, at XA as well as, you know, a personal investor, right? Um, could you share a little bit more about what's it like to be an angel and early stage investor in Southeast Asia? Okay. First, uh, I don't have much experience in that yet, just because uh, I started only uh, three years ago. And uh, that means that I fully understand that maybe in five years, uh, I will think differently about some of the things uh, uh, compared to what I think now. I think that's uh, exciting uh, for any person who has had experience in various uh, areas of technology. Being an angel investor uh, allows to have uh, really a stake and uh, view on the portfolio of different companies and uh, technological directions compared to just being focused on one company. It doesn't take a lot of operational time because I'm not a professional angel investor. By, by the way, this is also a very interesting job. Uh, I, recently, I read a book called uh, Startup Wealth, which is you can buy it on Amazon, which is just a combination of interviews with uh, professional angel investors who spend uh, their full time on that. That's a fascinating uh, collection of wisdom. But in my case, it's more like an ability to participate, uh, help, and also have a stake in different businesses that seem interesting to you in the areas that currently you do not work in operational, or have never worked in, but uh, you always wanted to do something. So that's an ability to do it. So for many folks, there are so many founders out there who... <laughs> you know, are looking for angel investments, right? And I think a big part that they're always asking themselves is like, what is an angel investor looking out for? Like, what is the incentives behind an angel investor to make a decision between yes or no? I'm just kind of curious, would you be open to sharing like how you think about the process when you be uh, founders and teams? Sure. As many other investors, I prioritize uh, the team. Basically, if I were to leave just one thing out of the whole due diligence uh, and then uh, I, I would have to make a decision right after that that one thing would be 
talking with uh, the key founders uh, just as people and understanding uh, what kind of people they are, how resilient they are, what is their motivation, how open they are to pivoting and changing the direction if needed, this kind of things. Uh, I would prioritize that over understanding their previous experience, understanding the technology and product uh, deeply and many other things. So this goes on top. Um, when you invest in uh, the early stage, everyone understands that so many things will change. And uh, you do not need to be an Excel worm and go through financial models. You need to have some basic understanding of uh, the unit economy and uh, what's happening. But most likely, uh, nothing will be like uh, in that financial model. But the people do not change. And there are some things that uh, well know is so difficult to change in ourselves. For instance, um, if you're a slow person, it's so difficult to become a fast person. And uh, if you uh, come from um, a very technical thing and uh, you really prioritize uh, technology, it's very difficult to change your mind and start about the, start thinking about marketing or business development first. So all these things become uh, rather clear after 30 minutes that you spend with founders. So this is the key thing when you invest in a very early stage. Does it feel like it sucks sometimes because, you know, I'm also an angel, right? And, you know, sometimes the team walks in and they're so optimistic and, you know, your brain is going like, hey, this team is not very strong, right? You know, uh, and it's a very awkward thing to say, right? Because, or think because, you know, you, you know what they're passionate about and you know that they could potentially prove you wrong. It's just that it's not enough for me as an angel to make a decision to say, yes, I will make that investment in you. What do you think is the optimal outcome of that conversation, right? Where the team is not probably going to get an investment or the angel's probably not going to make a call to do that investment. What's the optimal, you know, outcome for that meeting or, you know, relationship? Well, if you don't intend uh, to make uh, an investment, then just uh, building the relationship potentially for the future is the optimal outcome. You you never burn bridges, you uh, try to establish and build a relationship in any case, because that might be very useful. But I think uh, you mentioned a very important thing. Uh, what happens when you meet a team and uh, you believe that uh, they are not uh, professional enough, so they are not going to make it. Um, yeah, for sure, that's a big red flag. Although within that understanding, there also can be different situations. Um, I'm purposefully trying to make sure that I do not fall into the trap of uh, uh, giving a higher priority to more technical people with uh, the life path, which is similar to mine. This, you know, this often happens in uh, the VC world. If you pitch a VC and uh, you, you uh, know that there is a partner that fund uh, whose life uh, looked a bit similar to yours, then you try to reach out to that guy because there is a bias. People like to invest in the people who are like them. But uh, I'm trying to do a bit of an opposite thing because uh, uh, in many cases, I see the teams where uh, the founders are great uh, in the product and technology and they are really, really um, doing a breakthrough thing and they have deep understanding of that. But instead of doing something small, iterating, uh, doing uh, cost dev, customer development uh, um, along the way. And uh, by the time when you have a technology fully ready, 
already having uh, several clients and uh, uh, understanding the business part, they uh, prioritize uh, the development of the technology and the product. Uh, although I could have been such a person myself, I, I feel that it's not uh, the way of uh, doing business that, uh, in my understanding, optimize the outcome. So if the, the meeting doesn't go well, but you feel that people might be not, uh, you know, technically good enough, but they have the passion and uh, they are fast and they are trying and iterating, it might be still good. Yeah. Um, and what tips and advice do you have for teams that don't receive the angel investment, right? <laughs> so, you know, like lots of teams will meet lots of angels and, you know, not get investments from you or me or from lots of other people who have a lot of experience in the tech world. Um, what advice would you give them? Because, you know, it can feel quite demoralizing, right? You know, to get a bunch of no's, especially at such an early stage of the company. I think if you're like, a, you know, you're raising a series A, you know, then, you know, you're like, you've got a team, you've got a company, you know your metrics. So you know what you're building as well. But I think for such an early stage, I think a lot of them, they get discouraged, right? Because they don't get, you know, a yes decision. So what advice would you give them, um, who are facing such rejection, how should they be processing the rejections or incorporating the information? Sure. Two common situations come to my mind. One is that the rejections uh, mostly happen because uh, potential investors do not feel that the product uh, or the vision is good enough. And the reason is that the product or the vision is not good enough. In this case, it's hard to give an advice. I think uh, it will be... Uh, possible on the case-by-case basis, uh, but something needs to be done differently business-wise. So that is probably uh, um, probably a trigger that you should rethink what you're, you're doing. But the other situation, which is uh, quite common, is that uh, you have good vision and product, product idea, but you do not pitch it well. Because uh, not everyone can pitch well. Uh, not everyone finds enjoyment in all those talks. And if you're not enjoying, uh, it's quite difficult to demonstrate that, uh, yes, I can do it uh, approach and uh, really persuade uh, the listener that uh, you can do it. So in many cases, it's just a question of uh, being able to present. And in this case, there is an, an easier outcome. You need to think about uh, uh, expanding the team and uh, finding a person uh, who might be a co-founder, if that's an early stage, uh, or it might be an employee, but someone who can work closely with you and will help you explain what you're doing and pitch. Uh, the reason is not just to get the angel investment. Um, it's not possible for the company to grow because in so many cases, you will need to sell what you're doing and explain. So if the skill is missing, you need to uh, fill that skill for the business. So, you know, you've obviously done uh, quite a lot of success uh, in your career uh, between, you know, executives and as an angel now. Um, I'm just kind of curious uh, from your perspective is like, you know, you've obviously ran into some tough times along the way. Have there been any times where times have been tough and you've had to overcome some adversity and uh, as a result had to choose to be brave? Yes, of course. I think the majority of such situations... Uh, for me, were when I had to make a tough decision, usually choosing between two options, and both options uh, have a list of uh, 100 advantages and 100 disadvantages. 
I think I I need to uh, still learn to be better in such situations because um, sometimes I uh, notice that I tend to overthink. It's really difficult and frustrating and stressful. When you need to make a decision, you really cannot choose between uh, the two options and most likely uh, making a much faster decision, maybe after one or two days of uh, such hesitation, uh, might work much better in life. Because uh, in such situations, it means that probably both options might work well for you. So just make a decision and go. But uh, um, it goes against my personality. I really prefer to be more, a bit more sure, at least understand the preference. So there were cases when it took weeks or months to make a decision. And this, these were very stressful moments in my life. How do you manage your stress? Sports, especially cycling. Actually, I started cycling in Singapore. Uh, I have a friend here who, who does uh, triathlons and uh, he, he cycles a lot. So he just uh, got me interested in cycling and uh, it helps me a lot. So when I just go around the island, it takes several hours and then you return home, you have uh, almost no stress. You can just think again about the problem and uh, your mind is clear. Uh, that's one thing. I, I do not know any other one which is comparable uh, in terms of its efficiency. Probably the other one is just to uh, try to sleep and think again uh, the next day. But uh, cycling works much better to me. <laughs> well, uh, I totally get it. I think for me, it's uh, also sleeping. Uh, like sometimes at night, you're just thinking and thinking. You're just like, you know what? If If I just sleep now... I will feel better about making a decision tomorrow, um, which is an interesting uh, dynamic about being human, right? So, uh, you know, kind of like wrapping up things up here is, you know, if you could go back 10 years in time and meet, you know, the younger version of yourself, you know, Mark, uh, back in 2011, what advice would you give yourself? Take more risks while you're young. Try to be less risk averse because uh, in my uh, life, I had uh, rather a lot of ideas that I did not implement uh, just because I thought that I'm too busy or they're too risky. And they were quite small, uh, meaning that uh, they wouldn't take too much time if I decided to implement them. But now I think that uh, it's uh, very important uh, at least to write down all your ideas, uh, all the thoughts that might uh, seem uh, very uh, unorthodox at this point of time, and then try to follow up with some of them. Because if you don't do that and you prioritize like the given uh, career path and uh, quite a narrow sector of what you can do, then later you look back, some dots connect, and uh, you very often think, oh, wow, if I only followed that idea or that idea, I could have had uh, such a great result for now. So thinking about that now, 10 years later, just means that I try to be more risky. And if there is a risky idea that uh, you can launch or invest or create an article about a patent uh, and that doesn't take much time, just do it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for coming on the show. I think there were three big themes that I really appreciated you sharing. 
um, I think the first part of course was your transition uh, from you know your cutting your teeth as a technology leader in Russia and making a move to Singapore and how you felt about that move and why you decided to stay and double down not just on uh, your career but also like you said the stacking geographic nature of the networks um, and getting deeper into the local tech ecosystem as an executive um, and angel investor. Um, the second thing I really appreciated was um, your themes around uh, how to be an effective executive, you know, how to uh, rise as one, how to be successful and onboard as a new executive and a new team, and how to work effectively with other executives um, very quickly in a short period of time, including, you know, self-awareness around coaching um, and how to make uh, tough decisions. And uh, lastly, I think the third thing I really appreciated was you sharing about uh, what it means to be an angel investor and how you're thinking about making a decision for people coming in and what advice you would give to people who are coming in and how they should act on the feedback in the sense of either building their business or in improving how they pitch. So thank you so much for uh, sharing and dropping a lot of knowledge on everyone. Thank you very much, Jeremy. It was my pleasure to be on your podcast. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.